Thank you for downloading Paragon Church's Sunday morning sermon from Sunday, September 22nd. I'll remember and respond with communion. For more information about Paragon Church, please visit paragonchurch.com. If you have your Bibles with you, I would love for you to go to Ephesians chapter 4. And as you go to Ephesians chapter 4, what we're going to do today is we're going to talk really about two words. Two words we talked about last week, two words you'll hear as we come to the table, two words you hear even Jesus talk about throughout his ministry, but one specifically that was at the table. And the word number one is, is remember, and the second word is, is respond. Remember and respond. And as we look at this, what we want to do, and, and I'm hoping maybe this week you had the opportunity to read through Ephesians chapters 1 through 6. I'd asked you last week, Monday through Saturday, just read those verses. And uh, if you did, or even if you were here last week and remember us talking about it, Ephesians is really about res- remembering and responding. Ephesians 1 through 3 is remember who Jesus is. Remember what he has done. Remember what God has done for you. <clears throat> Remember what God has done for you in your life. Then, therefore, as Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1 starts out, there's a shift. Remember what he's done and therefore respond in a certain way. As a matter of fact, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1 actually says these words, Therefore, I, a prisoner in the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling that you've received. It's about remembering and responding. The calling that you've received, how do we receive that calling? We receive that calling through Jesus Christ. And as we look at it, and as we look at this table, there's a statement that Jesus makes that is recorded in the Gospels as well as in 1 Corinthians about remembering. He says, do this in remembrance of me. If you grew up in an old Southern Baptist church, you probably remember having the table that was in the very front, right up there in the front, and it had these words carved into it on the front. Do this in remembrance of me. We remember what he's done, and because of that, Paul urges us, as we talked about last week, to live worthy of the calling that we've received. Now, if you look at Ephesians chapter 4, we talked last week about the fact that in that living, we have started to build ourselves up. Christ is building us into this body, this body that is the church, this body that is us coming together. He has blessed us with that. And in the 16 verses in the first part of Ephesians chapter 4, he's telling us about it. Well, the 17th verse is similar to that first verse, and he uses the word therefore. Because you've been built up into this body, because he's making you into Christ's likeness, because of these things, this is how we should respond. So verse 17 of Ephesians chapter 4 says these words. Therefore, tying in those ideas of growing up spiritually and maturing into Christ-likeness, I say this and I testify in the Lord. You should no longer live as the Gentiles live, in the futility of their thoughts. Now, we're going to do a quick little remember here. He's telling us to remember what God has done for us. He's telling us to remember how we respond. He's telling us to remember all these things, and he says, all right, here in Ephesians chapter 1, remember this, in verse 4, for he chose us in him before the foundations of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. Therefore, don't walk as the Gentiles live. Remember in verse 5 of chapter 1, he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Therefore, you should no longer live as the Gentiles live. 
Verse 7 and 8 of chapter 1. In him we have redemption through his blood. Remember this. The forgiveness of our trespasses. According to the riches of his grace. That he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. Therefore, don't live anymore as the Gentiles live. Now that word Gentiles is very easily transformed also to pagans. The unbelievers, the people who don't get involved in Christianity, the people who are not a part of the church, who are not a part of religion, they're living off on their own. It says, don't live like them anymore because of these things mentioned in Ephesians chapter 1. As a matter of fact, verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 1, remember this. In him, we've also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. Also, you remember chapter 2. Chapter 2 talks about that we were once dead in our trespasses. We were once far from God. But now, God, because of what he has done, has made us alive in Christ. We need to remember that, and we need to respond by not living as the pagans or as the Gentiles used to live. And then also remember what we talked about last week, that we've been made part of the body of Christ. Now, here's something interesting. Maybe you've been in church a long time in your life. Maybe you haven't been in church for very long. Either way, what I've just told you is some of the most amazing stuff that the Bible has to offer us. And yet we kind of respond with a, huh. Instead of getting really excited about it, and I'm not asking you to dance around and wave flags and get tambourines and stuff like that like some churches do. But what I am saying is, man, we should really respond in our own lives with the amazingness of the gospel. That, that, that we have been changed, that we are being changed, that, that Jesus Christ stepped down into heaven for you and for me. You know, when we come to the table, some people ask me why we don't do it every week, because there's churches that do communion every week. Some people ask me why I don't do it once a month, because there's churches that do it once a month. And let me tell you, I'm not knocking any of those churches that do it that way. But I have this weird tendency to get routine. And when I get routine, I forget why I do what I do. I just do it. And maybe you're similar to me in, the, in that fashion. But I can tell you, before we ever planted Paragon Church, before Paragon Church ever started, I was a youth pastor. And I can still tell you today my schedule as a youth pastor. The things that I did day in, day out, and month in, month out. Because as a youth pastor, everything was based around the months. January, you're kicking off the year, you're getting everybody started, you're saying, hey, here's the things you should live for, here's all of this. You begin to move from January into February, and February is all about purity and love. And you'd always do your purity month, you do your love month, you give out the purity rings, you'd have ceremonies and all that kind of stuff like that. It would shift from that into March, and March was your time you do Disciple Now. Disciple Now is your in-home kind of retreat weekend and you, you challenge the kids to live for Christ. Well, then that kind of moved into April. April was Easter time. You focus on that. Then you moved into graduation as the kids were starting to move on their way up. You also focus on Mother's Day because you want to make sure mom was taken care of. Move into June. June was summer camp. Started doing summer camp stuff and getting all that together. Plus, BBS. June and July were kind of interacting that way. And guess what happens in August? August, school starts. Everybody starts doing all their school stuff, get all the back-to-school things going. September, I already announced it this morning, you focus on see you at the pole, praying for your school, all of those kind of things like that. October, you're working with harvest festivals, you're working with trunk or treats, you're working with high school sports, all the things that are going on. November, you're giving thanks, December, you're doing Christmas, and guess what happens? January starts again. And you just did that over and over and over again. 
Sometimes we miss wife. I never want to, with communion, to ever miss wife. I never want it to be something that we just do because it's the second Thursday or the whatever date it is that you want to say, or because it's Sunday morning, we have to do it this way. I want to remember what Christ has done, and I want it to mean something. I don't want it to become some routine. See, when we remember, we remember what God has done that has represented this table with the, the, the juice representing the blood being poured out to wash our sins away and the body being broken, that all the sin that Jesus took on his life, this is what it represents. It's not just some table that we do because it's a routine. See, God didn't just send Jesus to come down here to keep me out of hell. God sent Jesus because he wanted a relationship with me. He wanted to restore a right relationship between me and, his, and himself, between you and himself. Can you imagine that with me for just a second? That the creator of all things, the creator of the universe, everything bigger than we could ever possibly imagine, wanted to have a relationship with you so much so that he'd be willing to sacrifice his son for you. That's what this table's about. That's why we come to it. That's, that's the reason why we do what we do. See, if we go back to, we already kind of mentioned it, but you once were and now are. And the Bible talks a lot about it. First John 3, you were once far from God. You were an enemy of God's, but now we're an adopted child of God. Stop and think about that. Romans chapter 6, you were a slave to sin, now you're a slave to righteousness. Ephesians chapter 2, we've already talked about you were dead in your trespasses and sin, and now you're alive in Christ. As we get ready to come to the table, I want that to sink in. How amazing that is. Because if you were once dead, has anybody in here ever seen a dead person bring themselves back to life? Anybody ever been in a funeral and somebody's like, oh, yeah. Not going to happen. But God sent his son so that we could come back to life. We were once dead, we're now alive, and we celebrate that this morning. And I, and I think that's what Paul is talking about here is we're in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17. He says, guys, don't walk as the Gentiles walk. And then he describes what that looks like in the futility of their thoughts. In the futility of their thoughts, they are darkened in their understanding, verse 18, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. Don't be like them. They became callous, and they gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. You know, at the end of verse 17 right there, he says, don't be like them in the futility of their thoughts. You know what that means? You know what futility is? It's emptiness. It's vanity. It's lack or void of substance. Basically saying, the futility of the mind says, I'm pursuing goals in life that don't matter. There's no purpose to them. There's no anything to them. And unfortunately, the Gentiles or the pagans chase after that. You know what else I see, though? Is that the Christians have a tendency to chase after that, too. We're not supposed to. And that's what Paul is warning us here. But yet, we do it anyway. See, Ecclesiastes the book written thousands of years ago by Solomon, who was one of the wisest men, the wisest man at the time to, to ever live. And he says, you know what chasing after those things of the world is like? It's like chasing after the wind, he says. 
It's vanity. There's no purpose in it at all. So for thousands of years, we have grasped this. For thousands of years, we have known this, yet we continue to do it day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. It's what defines our lives oftentimes. Solomon's saying, you know what? There's no thing that this world values that isn't temporary. But yet we chase after it all the time. In the end, there's no worth. Think about stuff. Think about the day that you die. What's going to happen to all your stuff? Ever thought about that? I hope not. That's weird. But in the reality is we live for stuff and we want stuff. But when we die, we can't take it with us. And the most part, for the most part, the people who we leave it to, they don't care about it either. And they're going to sell it for pennies on the dollar after all that time, all that money, all that everything that you've invested in. But that's what we chase after because we think it matters. Then you can go to health and physical fitness. Now, I'm not saying these are bad things. It's just when we make them our God, the thing that we chase after constantly and we live for, that's when it becomes a problem. See, health and physical fitness are good, but when they become the thing that we worship, not so much. Because here's the thing about health and physical fitness. Everybody in this room is going to die. And when we start chasing after that thing and trying to, at some point in time, whether you're tall or short, fat or skinny, rich or poor, death is the great equalizer. But we live for these things instead of living for Christ. He says, stop living as the Gentiles do. What about positions of power? We always want to climb up the ladder and get to that point. But the reality is at some point in time, somebody's going to undercut you or somebody's going to take you over. But that's the thing we live for. That's where we find our identity. Had a really funny thing happen this week uh, with fame. Not with me personally, because that's just not going to ever happen. But uh, for some reason, at, at school, all week long, Levi, uh, our, our eight-year-old, has come home with marker all over him. I'm not sure if it's him doing it or if it's his sister doing it to him. I'm going with option number two, personally, because there was actually green marker colored inside of his ear this week, and I was looking at it, but he also came home with a mustache. It was a pretty well-drawn mustache, so I'm assuming somebody else helped him with it, but as he came home, I'm like, oh, he looks like Charlie Chaplin, and all my kids went, who? And some of you in this room went, who? Exactly. Because he was famous in the 20s for silent movies, but at the same time, fame fades. We know fame fades. We know power fades. We know bodies and healthy physical abilities fade. We know that, yet we still chase after them. Why? Why do we do it? Why does the world do it? And I think Paul answers it in verse 18. He basically says, they don't get it. He says this in verse 18. They're darkened in their understanding. In modern terms, they don't get it. Here's the thing. The Gentiles don't get it. They think that stuff is going to define them, even though they know an 8-track isn't cool anymore, and records, they tried to make a comeback, but not quite, and then you had your cassettes, and you had your CDs, and now we have digital, and all that other stuff has kind of just gone away. But that's the stuff we live for. How many of you guys had a whole book full of CDs or a whole cassette tape thing full of or a basket full of records that are meaningless, utterly meaningless. For the most part, all of us, at some point in time, we've chased after those things. And he says, they're darkened in their understanding. Even though we try, we, we try and figure out life without God. 
And the Gentiles, they don't have to try and figure out life without God because they don't know God. They're darkened in their understanding. As a matter of fact, the next part of that verse says they're excluded from the life of God. They, they don't have him in his, their lives at all, so why would they bother living for them? It's like the, the discussion I have with people, well, I can't believe they would do that. And I always say, well, non-Christians are going to act like non-Christians. We can't expect them to live to our moral code. And part of it's described in the book of Romans. There's this, without God, our lives start here, but then take this downward spiral and we begin to grow calloused or begin to grow hardened as it talks about in these passages. Matter of fact, Romans chapter 1, verse 21, Paul says this, for though they knew God. So this is kind of the beginning of that spiral. They knew who God was. They did not glorify him as God or show him gratitude. That's why I don't want this table to ever become routine. I want this table to be a time where we show gratitude that God would send his son for us. It says that, that they don't show him gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless, and their senseless hearts were darkened. So ignorance develops this hardness towards belief and this hardness towards faith. And it starts to set in. As it starts to set in, it starts to grow. And as a matter of fact, the next verse in Romans chapter 1, verse 22 says this. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. When God's out of the picture, I'm like, oh, I got this figured out. Have you ever sat and listened to somebody argue about something that is morally wrong, but that they are trying to justify it, whatever they're doing, whatever it might look like as why it's right, and they think they're wise, but they really sound foolish? I hear it in the, in the evolution debates. I hear it in, in the... Abortion debates, I hear it in so many things that, that are morally off, but we have to justify because there is no God for them to hold on to, so I have to come up with something, and I think I'm wise. Claiming to be wise, they become fools. And then their continued rejection of God spills over into verse 28, just a little bit further. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so they would do what is not right. So ignorance sets in. And it begins to downward spiral to where they're far from God. They knew God, but they rejected him. Now I don't even care about God anymore. Can we say that we see that on occasion in our own culture? How does it start? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. By the way, Paul is writing this to Ephesians. Paul is writing it to the Corinthians. Paul is writing it to the Romans. Paul is writing it to Galatians. Paul's dealing with this on all aspects in all churches. We're not the only church that struggles with it, but he's trying to correct it. He says this in 2 Corinthians 4, though. It says, in their case, the people were ignorant set in, the God of this age, who is Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. See, a person that rejects God takes a downward spiral. And their hearts begin to harden. And I'm not sure about you, but as your heart begins to harden, it doesn't quite move like it's supposed to. I found this out physically yesterday. Because yesterday I decided I was going to begin the cleanup process in our backyard. We have a bunch of wood chips. We had a giant play area. And I forgot that it took two dump truck loads of wood chips to fill the area. So that's how much it was going to take to remove from the area as well. But I'm out in the backyard and I'm shoveling. And it had just rained recently, and there's a lot of dirt mixed into it and all the things. So these wood chips weren't as light the first time, or as they were the first time. So they're a little bit heavier. I'm filling up trash bags, and I'm trying to move these trash bags. Well, I have failed myself physically, mentally, emotionally from going to the gym for about the last two and a half months. 
I got to thinking about it. I'm like, I think the last time I actually went was about middle beginning of July, which is a long time ago. And my body reminded me it was a long time ago. As I woke up this morning and I went, and everything was stiff in this general area from picking up bags like this. And this whole elbow still aches just a little bit. I, I, ibuprofen just isn't quite doing what I thought it would do. But I'm still kind of working through that. But if we grow harder and don't work out that muscle, even as the heart, it's going to grow and it's going to hurt when it starts to do things. It's going to begin to even paralyze us spiritually. Paralyze us physically. And get to that place where we're far from him. See, because the reality is the depravity of man without Christ, because we are just naturally wicked people, the depravity of man without Christ and what he's done will result in the hardness of our hearts towards what is moral and towards what is spiritual. It's going to be the natural reaction. And that's why Paul's like, don't live as the Gentiles live. Don't live as the pagans live. As a matter of fact, he says this in verse 19 of that, going back to Ephesians chapter 4. They became callous. Maybe you know what that is. And they gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. Not only did they just throw out morality, but then they wanted more and more of it. That's how the Gentiles live because they're far from God. The problem is... Christians can fall into that same thing because we live in this mound of flesh that's still willing to sin, still desiring to sin. The verse then, basically, after it says, you know, you want more and more. Why do we want more and more? It's because it feels good, right? I mean, we start basing things on feelings, and as long as it feels good, who cares about the moral applications, and who cares about even the godly standards in it all? I want what I want. And I'm going to take just a quick little side note here. That, that life transformation, it is the Christian life. It, it's a process. It's a process that we go through, and we need to know that true, genuine, powerful life transformation is available to everybody on this planet through and in Jesus Christ. We have to understand that. But it is important to understand that the process, how it happens, it starts with our mind, it changes our will, which shapes our feelings. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 talks about how, how God is, is shaping our minds. He's renewing our minds. He's making it new. And as he makes it new, it's going to change my will, my desires, and it's going to change my feelings towards that. That's the renewed life. That is the transformed life. But if you eliminate God and you want to just live a life, that's going to be backwards. It's not going to be the renewed mind changing your will, changing your feelings. It's going to be your feelings first. And how many people base their decisions and their life on the feelings they have? And how easy is it for us to lie to ourselves? And we'll take the justifications that we have from our feelings and the way that we feel and the way that that, and we're, just, we're literally controlled by the passions within our feelings well, guess what? It's going to shape our will, and then we're going to justify in our mind why we do it. That's why Paul kept saying, don't live as the Gentiles live. Don't walk as the Gentiles walk. And you know, this isn't to say that the unbeliever, the person that doesn't go to church, doesn't have a high moral standard, or it's impossible for them to have a high moral standard. Some people I know that don't go to church are better off than some people that I know that go to church. So we can be very honest with that. However, if the bar that you're setting is your own bar and not God's standard bar, 
know what you can do with your bar? You can move it. Yeah, I'm going to move it down here just so I seem like I'm a little bit better. Well, I'm going to move it back up here because I meet that bar finally, where God's standard stays the same. And if we're moving our bar and we're moving that around, it's going to change if we're not based on the absolutes of God. But then there's also the unbeliever that has no moral standards. And they challenge us and they challenge those who do have standards and say, you know what? I don't know why you're so locked into that. I don't know why you do that. Why don't you just tolerate and accept and embrace and even celebrate what I do? Why don't you do that? That's a battle we have on a consistent basis. You know, some people think it just started recently, but it's been going on for thousands of years. And it's this battle that we have. As a matter of fact, Paul talks about it even in 1 Corinthians, once again, writing back to the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I'm sorry, chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. He says this in verse 9. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Talking to a church, he's saying, guys, don't walk as the pagans do. Don't walk as these other people do. Do not be deceived. Don't think that by your feelings that this is okay. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, before we get too far into that one little section right there, my guess is, is that you can see a description of yourself in that verse somewhere. I know some guys are like, hey, I check off eight of the nine. I'm like, which one didn't? <laughs> but that's, that's the kind of thing you, you hear, and you, you, but the great part of this entire passage is what comes next in verse 11 when it says these words, and some of you used to be like this. Some of you used to walk this way. Some of you had hearts that were hardened in such a way, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It wasn't us changing. It was the fact the Spirit works in our lives to break down that hardened heart. There's nobody that is too far from God. The Spirit can open eyes. The Spirit can open the heart. And we don't have to remain blinded and ignorant towards God. Why is that? Once again, this table. This table, that's what it represents. But then Paul goes back to the Christian walk. And if you go back to verse 20 of Ephesians chapter 4, he says, don't walk like the Gentiles do, but that is not how you came to know Christ, he says. That's not how you came to know Christ. The description of verses 17, 18, and 19, all the other things I've thrown in from every other scripture, I've just kind of dumped all that on you, says that is not what the Christian life is about. That's what the Gentiles live for. But we, we live for Christ. But yet, far too often in the church, that's not the case. And if it's not the case, if you see yourself living as a Gentile lives, but you call yourself a Christian, there's something amiss. There's something wrong here. And I wrote down three things that are wrong and really three ways to kind of fix it. Even this morning as you come to the table and you repent and and these kind of things come out of your life. The first one is is this. It's lack of discipleship. We talked about the whole purpose for God's plan for God's people is Christ-likeness. And how does that happen? Well, if there's a lack of discipleship, it's not going to happen. And when we look at lack of discipleship, the first people that are responsible for lack of discipleship are the disciple-ers, those who disciple the church. We have dropped the ball on the Matthew 28, 20, and teach them everything I have commanded you. 
go and make disciples and teach them everything that I have commanded you. We don't teach people. People stay spiritual babies for far too long, therefore their life never changes, and therefore they don't even know they need to respond with their life. And when I say respond, this isn't me trying to earn salvation because I need God to think I'm on his side in some way. This is me responding because of salvation, because I know that God's on my side and that he has saved me. Therefore, I will respond in this way. So lack of discipleship is that first thing, helping people know they need to respond. The second problem we have is a stubbornness to sin. May I say this out loud without getting judged? Sin is fun. Consequences aren't fun. Sin is fun. And, and that's how we're sold it. Nobody ever talks about the consequences. We only talk about it. And those sins, they develop habits, and habits are hard to break. And once again, we live in this flesh that says, this is what I want to do, and I don't really want to change. So therefore, stubbornness and sin is causes us to live 17 through 19 like a Gentile versus what God has called us to live in response to him. The third one I wrote down is this. The third problem that I see in it all is there's a lot of people, I think, who call themselves Christians who are not. We say they're nominal Christians, but that's not possible. You can't be a Christian in name and not an actual lifestyle. But people believe that. They, they, they bit into that. As a matter of fact, Paul, once again, writing to churches, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, he says, test yourselves to see if you're even in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you yourselves not recognize that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test? How do we respond? You know, uh, I, I have the opportunity on Wednesdays to go over to the Fairwinds uh, Retirement Home over here, Retirement Center, and um, I get to teach with a rotation of pastors, and it was my turn this week to teach. And as I was teaching this week, um, we're teaching through the book of Galatians, another letter that, that Paul wrote to the church at Galatia. And his whole letter is about how quickly they turn from the truth to uh, a false gospel. As a matter of fact, the, the passage I was in was Galatians chapter 1, verse 16. He says, I'm amazed at how quickly you turned. Not even the fact that you turned, but how quickly you turned from the truth to this false gospel. And, and we were talking about the same thing, about there, there's a Remember what Christ did, Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, and this is how we should respond. This is what our life should look like. And I was talking about that with this group of people, and, and there was one elderly gentleman that was staring right at me, and he just looked at me and he said, what if I don't? What if I don't respond? And I honestly couldn't come up with an answer fast enough, so I said, well, that's a good question. Because that's a good question, it's a great way to stall Watch a debate sometime, you'll see that. They're always like, hmm, good question. And they'll have to really think about it and how they're going to answer this. And, and finally, I kind of said, well, here's the first thing. I'm not the judge. God is the judge. And, and there's going to be a day that every single one of us in this room stand before God. And he's going to say, okay, you call yourself a Christian. However, you responded with zero. How are you going to answer him? Because he's a God of grace and he's a God of mercy. But at the same time, he's a God of truth. He's a God of justice. And those things work together. And God is God, and I am not, so I cannot do it. But I did say this. I told him, I said, if I am fully aware of all the things that God has done for me, if I'm fully aware that he sent his one and only son to die on a cross, to live a life of perfection, to be my substitutionary atonement for a Christian term, basically saying he's the one that went to the cross in my place, 
if, if he is all of these things and he loved me enough to do that, and I choose not to respond, what's wrong with me? How, how many things in this world are more important than that? How many things do not demand my, my life, yet I give them my life, and the one that does demand my life, I say, no, I'm not going to respond. That's a, that's a tough question to answer. As a matter of fact, I got to thinking about that hymn, and, and maybe you grew up in the church singing hymns. You remember the one, When I Surveyed the Wondrous Cross? And the last stanza of it said, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine. Anybody remember the rest of that? Demands my soul, my life, my all. I mean, there's good theology in that. Shouldn't it just naturally flow from me that I want to respond in such a way? That's what Paul's talking about. Don't live anymore like the Gentiles do. Remember all the things that Christ has done for you. Ephesians chapter 4, getting back into verse 20. But that's not how you came to know Christ. Assuming you heard about him and were taught by him, and the truth is in Jesus. A life of a believer should be very different than the life of an unbeliever. If it's not, you have to ask yourself the question, why? Why is it not? Why is my life not any different than anybody else that doesn't go to church other than I give God an hour on Sunday morning? Why is it not different? It's, it's a question I ask myself. We examine our heart. We examine our life. And it's something actually Paul challenges us to do before we come to the table when he writes to the church in Corinth about communion. He says, hey, if you come to this table in an unworthy manner, check yourself. Check yourself. How are we coming to this table? See, we need to remember that the gospel message, once again, isn't focused on us escaping hell. Instead, it's us on being restored into a right relationship with God. He did it, A, to demonstrate his power and his glory and his honor in our lives that he might get the praise. He did it, too, as it talks about in Acts 2.40 that says, you know what? You were saved from this perverse generation for this reason. But then it also is three of what we've talked about for the last couple of weeks, that God's purpose for God's people is Christ-likeness. It's us to be more like him. But if we're continuing to live like the Gentiles do, we're not going to become more like him. See, we're a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17. But if you go back to 2 Corinthians 5.15, before Paul tells us that we're a new creation, he says these words, and he died for all, he being Jesus, died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, which is what the Gentiles do, but instead for the one who died for them and was raised. Are we living for ourselves? And the question follows that is why? What is worth more to you than Jesus Christ? And that's why he says this in verse 22 through 24 in Ephesians chapter 4. To take off your former way of life, that old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness, that whole idea, God's purpose, God's likeness. And it's going to be that likeness is going to be in righteousness and purity of the truth or holiness. This quite possibly is the best succinct summary of the Christian life. Take off, be renewed, put on. Take off, be renewed, put on. It's done for us at salvation. We just need to live in response to that. Take off. 
means don't keep going back to your old dirty clothes. That's been taken away, that's been washed, that's been cleansed. Stop going back to it. It reminds me of a story when I was a camp counselor between my freshman year and sophomore year in college. And I worked at Teepee Village. And Teepee Village is exactly what you expect it to be. You lived in a teepee all summer long. Well, I had a kid by the name of Mark. Mark actually was in my church. I knew Mark. I, I had him later in junior high and high school ministry. And Mark was one of those kids that showering was not something he wanted to do. And by Thursday of the week, he was, he was dirty, to say the least. Okay, living in a teepee with dirt all around, he was dirty. As a matter of fact, Mark was one of the kids who used to wear Rex Specs. You guys remember Rex Specs back in the day? They were the, they were the uh, goggle-looking, uh, like, regular glasses, but he wore them all the time, not just for sports. And, and so when he took off his Rex Specs, he had a dirt line that surrounded. He looked like a raccoon, and it wasn't from a suntan. And, and he was one who did not want to. And by Thursday, I said, Mark, seriously, dude, you need to take a shower. Oh, but no. There's no if, ands, or buts. You need to take a shower. And through some, some great verbal coercion and maybe some physical, we got him into the shower. He got all cleaned up. He got all washed off. And you know what he did? He got out. And the clothes he'd worn from Sunday when he got there that afternoon till Thursday when he took the shower, he put them back on. And they were gross. And I gagged. I can still remember it. I'll have Alzheimer's someday. That'll be a story I will remember. Uh, here's the thing. We do that in our Christian life. God has cleansed us. And we get back out. And we're like, but those are comfortable. That's just the way I like We have all the excuses on why we put the dirty stuff back on. He says, take off the old self. Be renewed. Renewal starts in the mind. I already told you, Romans chapter 12 starts with the renewing of the mind. You have been remade made new. It doesn't say you've been refurbished. It, it doesn't say that you have been repaired. It says that you have been made new, a new self, a new creature in Christ. Then, but once again, we have that tendency to put that old flesh back on. And that's why Paul has to write, even in the book of Romans, he says, guys, don't let sin reign in that mortal body. Don't let it be the one that's in control. And it also says, don't be presenting your parts of your body for sin. Don't do it. Stop living as the Gentiles do. And what are we going to do? We have to put on that new self. We have to put on the new self that is Jesus Christ. We have to wear that. We have to present that. And that is how we respond. We remember all that Christ has done, and we respond. Remember and respond. As we do, I know he's continuing to work on our lives, and we're going to slip, and we're going to fall, and we're going to stumble. But the great thing is, is when we come to the table, we're reminded that he did this for us before we were ever good. He did this before us before we ever even deserved it. Not that we ever have deserved it. But he did it because he loved us. And we are forgiven. And that we have the opportunity to come before him and repent. See, as we come to the table, there's something I, I want you to hold on to. And that is this. Th this is a table for those who are believers in Jesus Christ. It's something we do to remember what he's done. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, I'm going to ask you to refrain from joining us today in the table. However, I would love to talk to you about becoming a believer in Jesus Christ. And what that means and what that looks like for a life of change. And see how God's working in your heart.
But it also is a time for us to reflect and respond. And the first with the reflection is, is look at my own life. Where am I at? How am I living? What's going on here? What are the things that, that God has called me to give up that I have not? What are the things that I can repent from? Which means make a 180 to, to follow him instead of it. I, I'm no longer a slave to sin. I'm a slave to righteousness. What are the things that are still holding me in bondage over here? And how can I give them to him? Take time this morning. We're going to sing three, four songs. First song is going to be a song you maybe have never even heard of. Maybe that's a great time for you just to kind of focus on repentance and just turning it over to God. And then respond by coming to the table and taking that cup and taking that bread and going back to your seat, either as an individual, as a family, as a couple, whatever it might look like for you. And as you do it, just saying, God, thank you. Thank you for loving me enough to send your son to die for me even though I didn't deserve it and even though I still screw up all the time. You still love me enough. We do this in remembrance of what he's done, and we respond in that way. Let me close with a passage, one more passage that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. He says this in verse 11. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night he was betrayed, he, Jesus took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We respond in repentance. We respond in proclamation as we proclaim the death that has saved us from ourselves. Can I challenge you to do that today? I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask the band to come. We're going to sing some songs. And the table's open. If you're a believer, come at any point in time during the three, four songs that we're singing, but just do it in a heart of repentance. That's all I'm asking. Respond to say, God, thank you for giving your son. Take my life and let it be all for you and for your glory. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for who you are. And thank you for the way you continue to work in our heart and the way you continue to work in our souls and the way you continue to make us more like you by renewing our minds, by conforming our will to yours, and then adjusting our feelings as such instead of letting our feelings do all of that. God, thank you for that. Thank you for still loving us when we fail. Thank you for still loving us when we stumble and fall. Thank you for still loving us even when we do good because we know even our good works are like filthy rags before you. God, you're changing us, and I'm thankful for that. And I pray that if there's a stunt in our growth that we can even see as we examine ourselves before we come to the table, God, you make it very evident on how we can get it fixed. And it may not happen by tomorrow. It may take years. We don't know. But God, work in us. Change us to who you want us to be. For your glory and your honor. We pray it in your name. Amen.